<sighs> well, it is really, really good to be here. And to be honest, it is really, really good to be alive. <laughs> I want to thank you for those that prayed for me recently. Uh, I was really sick this spring, and I had some pretty intense conversations with Jesus that it probably mostly just sounded like begging. <laughs> I knew that I should want to see Jesus face to face and just be with him for all eternity, but I wanted to live. <laughs> and when I came out of the hospital, we were fortunate to be very, very well cared for. We experienced the church doing it really, really well. And some of you I know were part of the meal train, and I have to tell you, meal trains are awesome. Our church has not really picked up on that idea yet, but we will. We will, because <laughs> you get to be fed, and you get to be, get connected with people when you're really isolated at home. It was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. But I realize that not everyone experiences that same kind of care. As a church, you guys work really hard at this relationships thing. And it's a wonderful thing. You work hard to get people connected and for them to feel that connection in friendships. You have a meal together every week. You have your small groups. This is making a lot of noise. Yeah, okay. Um, and you have your summer picnics. Who all was at the summer picnic this last Friday? Good job, good job. You're purposeful about spending time together here. And even, but even in the midst of a very loving group, not everyone always feels that care and connection that they long for. A church cannot fill our every desire. Only Jesus can do that. But we are called to be Christ's body, the fullness of him. But sometimes we struggle to truly love each other. We struggle with that whole unity and oneness thing. But thankfully, Jesus prayed for us. And tonight, we're going to read a bit of that prayer for us, and we're, then we'll pray with him. So let's start. I'll be reading from his prayer in John 17, just verses 20 to 23. And this is Jesus talking to the Father. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So let's join him in prayer. Father, Son, and Spirit, God of relationship, may you work tonight in the deep places of our hearts, so that we might grow in our love and in our love for, with you 
in our oneness, in our unity, so that you are revealed to those around us. Amen. Okay, this is John 17. It's his Jesus' prayer after that last meal with his disciples before he heads out to the Garden of Gethsemane and to his crucifixion. This is Jesus' conversation with his Father at this most intimate, intense moment, and we get to listen in. But we're looking at just a snippet of this whole prayer, and in this is the part, part of the part, where he is praying for us, for all those who will believe in Jesus through the message of his disciples. So Jesus is confident that his message is going to be shared after he dies. And we can see this as a challenge to us because we are the ones that now are to present that message to the next generation of believers. And what we're going to talk about tonight is an important way of how that message is to be expressed. So he prays in verse 21 that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is praying that we will be one. Jesus is one, just as Jesus is one with his Father. Now that's a pretty high bar and that, they will, that we will be in the triune God. Now, the Spirit isn't explicitly mentioned here, but he is the one that is enabling all this to happen. So it all starts with God, the Trinity, the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We know that God is love. We've sung the songs. <laughs> Their relationship is infinite, perfect intimacy. Three distinct persons that have one heart seeking the same purpose. And we together are invited into that, into that love relationship. We don't become God. We don't become gods. We don't lose our individuality. And we don't necessarily always agree on everything. But we join our triune God in this love relationship, growing in one heart, seeking the same purposes. So God is all about relationships. And yet it seems like everything in our culture pulls us away from relationships. Our individualism, our I can do it by myself attitudes, our workaholism, our technology, and how that is reshaping how we do relationship. So I want to do a quick poll here. How many of you like to talk to people that you don't already know? Would you just raise your hand if you like to talk to people? How, have, how many of you would prefer not to talk to people you don't already know? Yeah, yeah. So a few weeks ago, there was an article in the Seattle Times entitled, Seattle Freeze. And this was not an icy drink, but it's talking about the social coldness of those living in our Pacific Northwest. Forget making friends, half of Washington residents don't even want to talk to you. And you know, that was pretty much true here tonight in what you expressed. And they think that part of it might be from our Nordic roots. Well, hello, as covenanters, where are our roots? <laughs> okay, what's that? In <laughs> 
Okay, so a poll. Oh, got that. And yet, loneliness is epidemic. And it's now considered a public health risk. Loneliness has been estimated to shorten a person's life by 15 years, as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. A recent study found that 47% of Americans, that's almost half of us, feel alone, left out, and lack a meaningful connection with others. And this is true across all ages. In fact, in the UK, they were so concerned about this that they created a new cabinet-level position, and they call it the Minister of Loneliness. How would you like that job? As a church, as a church, this shapes us tremendously in who we are and what our ministry is, what our mission is. So what difference does Jesus make? He prays in verses 22 to 23, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So Jesus, it says, has given us the glory the Father gave him, so we can be one. Glory leads to oneness. I appreciate the music that was chosen for tonight. It was perfect in terms of leading up to this. So what is glory? The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It means weight or worthiness. So when we give God glory, we acknowledge his infinite weight, his supreme importance. If you put God and his importance on an old-fashioned scale to measure weight, his weight would push that scale down so hard and so fast that it would be like a fat man sending a skinny kid flying up into the air. When we give him glory, we honor his beauty, his majesty, his holiness, his perfection, and we acknowledge that he is worthy of our worship and our lives, and we recognize his utter magnificence in the Bible, we give him glory, but we also see his glory. Earlier, we had read about Mount Sinai and that he appeared as a consuming fire. Then he was visibly filled the tabernacle, visibly filled the temple. And then the glory of God moved into the neighborhood as Eugene Peterson famously paraphrased John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son. Jesus was God's glory, living and breathing and walking around. He revealed the kavod of God. He revealed his character, his love, his goodness, his beauty. He revealed the utter magnificence of God. And now, Jesus says that he has given that glory to us. In our sin, we fall short of the glory of God, Romans tells us. We can't begin to express the glory of God in our sinful, sin-soaked lives. It's only through Christ's death, only because of his unfathomable grace, 
that Christ states that he has given us the glory that the Father had given him. We together are God's glory bearers. We are now God's glory living and breathing and walking around. We reveal the kavod, the weightiness, the worthiness of God. We reveal his magnificence. Sit with that a minute. But glory and glorified are also used in another way. Jesus was being glorified, referred to his death on the cross. On the cross, Jesus most clearly revealed the kavod of God. He most clearly revealed who God is and his character and his love and his goodness and his beauty. So sit with that a minute, glory bearers. Obedience, servanthood, humility, sacrificial love, giving his life for us, that is what it meant for Jesus to be a glory bearer. That's how Jesus revealed God and his immense love for us. So how do we reveal who God is? How do we reveal his character, his love, his worthiness? For starters, we need to acknowledge that we cannot do this on our own. No amount of moral effort can make this happen. It can only come out of that relationship we were talking about we enjoy with our triune God. This profound spiritual intimacy changes us and enables us to do what we are absolutely incapable of doing on our own. As we stay connected, as we are, abide in the vine, as we live in this relationship, he grows his fruit in us. The characteristics of Jesus that love and joy and peace and patience, all those things. He changes our relationships. He makes it so we want to love others as he has loved us. We grow in oneness as we begin to experience this unity of heart and mind. Recognizing our dependence on God to make this a reality happen in our lives, I just want to suggest three things that we can do to give God some space to work. So these are three things that we can do to give God space to work in and through us. And the first one is simply to show up. Now this is a pretty low bar, <laughs> and yet we still struggle with it. It means to show up with God, and it means to show up with one another. Showing up with God is simply giving him space in our lives, reading our Bible, praying, giving our lives to him and sharing what's going on with him. But then there's that showing up with one another. Jesus isn't just praying for Chris, for Andy, for Christy. He's praying for his body, the church. He prays for all of us together that we would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. This doesn't happen if you're acting like people in the pool that don't want to talk to anybody. So my son-in-law, Michael, 
Does Michael make it here? I don't think he did. He was on duty with the kids today. <laughs> so anyway, I hope he didn't hear this joke here, but I'm going to share it anyway. So there was a man who was rescued from a deserted island after being stranded alone for years upon years upon years. And his rescuers noticed that there were three huts on this island. And they, they were asking him about it. What's with the three huts? Well, he said one is where he lived. And the second one was where he went to church. And they said, well, what about the third one? Oh, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> Showing up requires committing to consistency. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not give up meeting together. This is not just worship on Sundays, but it's connecting with smaller groups where relationships can grow, which you guys do work so hard to make happen here. <clears throat> but the reality is that you can be in a small group for years and never really grow spiritually or emotionally, relationally. So we have a number two. Got to have a number, at least a number two. And that's be hospitable. Be welcoming. Now this isn't talking about having people over for dinner. This is more, that's thinking about open homes. This is more of an open heart attitude. Creating a place where trust and vulnerability can happen. With God, that's being honest with God. Trusting that he hears for you, that he cares for you. But it's also being a welcoming and open and honest presence with one another. And you think about the one another's. There's about a hundred of these in the New Testament of ways we're to interact with each other. I just picked, what, one, two, three, four, five, six. So be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another. Accept one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage and build one another up. Pray for one another. So Gary Thomas, some of you may have heard of him, he wrote a book called Authentic Faith, and in it he shares a story that a Christian man invites Gary to lunch. And after they chatted a little bit, this man asked Gary how he handled temptation when he was traveling. And Gary, oh, he'd written an article on this, he says, and he was full of anecdotes and advice. And he said he blessed this poor man with his astounding wisdom, insight, and practical strategies for 45 minutes. And Gary later realized that he had been so full of himself, and he gave of himself, but what the man really needed was for someone just to listen to him. He needed someone, he needed a way to encounter God for himself. So Gary recognized that his immaturity had hindered God's work, that he needed to leave behind the old selfish habits and ways of relating that he'd had. He writes that the immature might be on their way to heaven, but they rarely see deeply changed lives. To be hospitable, to be a safe place for others, we have to be willing to set ourselves aside. Our ego, our sense of importance, our agenda, and to open our hearts to one another. Henri Nouwen puts it like this, to care means first of all, 
to empty our own cup. Being hospitable, listening well, taking the time and energy to be present with someone, it's a powerful gift that we have to offer to each other. And there are times when we have to be willing to express our own vulnerability. When I was sick, Mark and I had to be willing to express our needs. We had to be willing to receive a meal train, but let me tell you, it was great. But we had to let others buy our groceries, clean the house. There was, when Mark went back to work, we had to have others come and stay with me because I wasn't able to even be in my home alone yet. It's tough to be seen not at the top of your game. To see, to have to share those doubts, those fears, the weakness, the struggles, even our sin. Oh my. <laughs> Sometimes it's even hard to really share our deep joys and hopes and dreams. So this is first, the first two ways to give God space. Showing up, be hospitable. The third is to engage. <clears throat> That's being willing to listen to those nudges of God and to respond. It, <laughs> the challenge of this one is it takes time and energy that we find in very short supply, and I totally get that. So it makes, it makes it so we have to be purposeful how we use our time so we have spaces we have those gaps that we can be listening to God and to be able to respond as he prompts. The scripture says, never tire of doing what is good. Engaging is being willing to make the phone call, willing to invite somebody out for coffee or whatever beverage of choice is yours. It's taking time to pray with someone and not just say, oh, I'll pray for you. It may be making a meal or serving in some other way. You all can think of ways that you can be helpful to serve another. It's being willing to respond to those needs that we see as the Holy Spirit prompts us. We can't do everything, there's no way. But as the Holy Spirit prompts, if we are giving him the space to listen, that's when we're to move. And it takes showing up, doesn't it? Because we have to show up to even know what's going on in other people's lives, to become aware of people's needs. And it takes being hospitable to be able to move beyond our own stuff, to be listening well, to be that safe place where people can share what's really going on and what, what their needs might be, so that we can actually do something. So these are ways we can give God space to grow our oneness, but what's it for? Is it just to make us less lonely? Is it just to make us feel good as a community? To bring us comfort? Those things are all wonderful, but that's not what the text says this is for. It says that he's given us his glory so the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. So the world will know that the Father has loved them. It reminds me of one of our best known verses. For God so loved the world, gave his only son. 
So our love, our oneness, our unity is what expresses God's love to the world that needs him so much. Probably better than a John 3.16 sign in the end zone. What do you think? Maybe? <laughs> when we love one another, when we are of one heart and one purpose, the world sees that God, why God sent Jesus, our love shows the world God's love. So Tim McAvoy, Tim McAvoy, loaned me a wonderful biography of Dallas Willard, and it's called Becoming Dallas Willard, The Formation of a Philosopher, Teacher, and Christ Follower. It's kind of a mouthful of a title, but the book is really good. It's by Gary W. Moon. So Dallas was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California until his death just a few years ago. So I have to tell you that one of my proud mama moments is that our son, Jeff, who happens to be visiting tonight, got to teach Dallas's philosophy of religion classes. <laughs> now, this tells you not only is he a nerd, but I must be a nerd, that this is my proud mama moment. <laughs> but I have to say there are a lot of other things that make me proud, too, just, just to clarify that. But Dallas was not only huge in the philosophy world, he was huge in the Christian community. He wrote Christian classics like Divine Conspiracy, Hearing God, Renovation of the Heart, The Great Omission, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Now these books deeply have shaped my life and the lives of millions. He also was great friends with Richard Foster, who some of you may know wrote the book Celebration of Discipline. And they, the two of them, Dallas was instrumental in helping Richard start Form Renovari, which is an organization that provides retreats and classes and books for spiritual formation. And Dallas taught and mentored many, many students at the Renovari Institute. So, but what impressed me most in reading this book was not Dallas's great intellect, which was phenomenal. He was clearly a brilliant man. And it wasn't that he, the great things he accomplished, which were many. When I read about his life, it made me want to be better. He wrote, I've had to learn that the important thing is not what I accomplish, but the person I become. And in many ways, the person he became exemplifies what I've been trying to express tonight. Dallas showed up. He spent a great deal of time with God in silence and solitude. He practiced the disciplines that he wrote about and taught about, and it was reflected in his life. He was committed and active in his church. He was often preaching and teaching classes and grew in deep relationships there. That's where he met Richard Foster, was at the Quaker church they both went to. Richard Foster came as a new pastor. Dallas was hospitable. He was vulnerable and open with God and with others about his struggles and about his needs. His family, his friends, his students repeatedly commented on his warmth and his kindness and his gentleness. He was approachable and people felt very safe with him. And Dallas engaged. 
He was an incredi incredibly busy speaker, writer, teacher, and yet when one of his students came to him in his office and shared a deep need, Dallas dropped everything, and he went out and walked with this student for two hours and just listened to him as he shared of his need. And the world saw God in who Dallas was. One student shared that he was an atheist when he started taking his undergrad class from Dallas Willard. The student had no idea that Dallas was a Christian. He doesn't recall that Dallas ever referred to Jesus, the scriptures, the Trinity. But by the end of the term, that student had become a Christian. Dallas wrote, to glorify God means to think and act in such a way that the goodness, greatness, and beauty of God are constantly obvious to you and all those around you. We are glory bearers, revealing who God is, not just in who we are, but in our relationships. God wants to reveal his great love to the world through our love with one another, our oneness, our unity. Oh, Lord, may it be so. As we move towards communion, I want to leave you with three questions to ponder. And I would say to just pick one that resonates most with, with you tonight. Do we have the questions? Nope. Okay. I'll just read them. The first is, where is God asking you to show up? Where or how is God desiring you to be more hospitable? And where is God nudging you to engage? So let's pray. Triune God, as we enter this time of communion, we recognize our fellowship with you. We are so grateful that you have invited us into this relationship with you. What a privilege, what a gift. We ask that you would show us how you desire for us to be glory bearers. How do you desire for us to reveal who you are to the world around us? Our heart's desire is to show others how magnificent you are, to show others how much you love them. May you be honored and praised. Amen.